Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. I hope you had a great weekend. We got a terrific show here for you on a Monday morning, kicking it off with the Sight Sea Dam. Now, I think people should hang on to their wallets here. Could this project turn into the biggest and costliest white elephant? in bc history if you think back to some of the other bungled projects in our province's history and one of the ones that springs top of mind for a lot of people are the the fast ferries under a previous ndp government that was where what 450 million for the fast ferries that's peanuts that's nothing compared to the site c dam we've already sunk almost what six billion bucks into the site c dam now you've got reviews going into this project there have been nightmarish engineering challenges in trying to get this thing built on the peace river largely to do with the unstable land base next to the river now premier john horgan not ruling out pulling the plug on this project have a listen to this this is horgan uh, during the election campaign we've asked an independent official who used to work for the bc liberals peter milburn very capable guy an engineer a former deputy minister of finance he's doing an independent review he's going to be giving that information to government in the next number of weeks we're going to take a look at that and if it determines that we're on the wrong course we're going to take the appropriate action to protect bc hydro ratepayers to protect british columbians okay don't forget that horgan was the guy who gave this thing the green light back in 2017 now the project was started under the liberals and christy clark horgan and the ndp campaigned against it they were opposed to the project horgan decided you got to keep going it's just too far down the tracks it's past the point of no return we've got to keep building it now they're saying they might cancel it really not ruling that out wow wow this could be a disaster for British Columbia taxpayers and for the whole and the province as a whole. All right, we got some great guests on this to talk about it. My first guest is Sarah Cox, a very fine reporter for the Narwhal website. She has done some of the great sort of primary digging on this story. Some of the FOI documents that she has uncovered has given us a much clearer understanding of what's going on there. She's the author of the award-winning book Breaching the Peace: The Site Sea Dam and a Valley Stand Against Big Hydro. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sarah. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Congratulations on all the work you've done on this, because I think that a lot of British Columbians, I think, are struggling to understand precisely what the challenges are up there. Uh, so let's start with the situation on, on the ground right now. Well, how much have we spent on this thing so far? Well, um, I'm hearing between $5 billion and $6 billion right. so far. When, right. when the NDP made the decision in 2017, it was about $1.9 billion in sunk costs. But as energy experts and financial experts say, it's not how much we've spent, but the spending that is still to come that we should be considering. They kind of equate it to if you've got an old car and you keep pumping money into it, at, at what point do you bail and say, I'm just going to put my money into a new car or just put it in the bank? Right, yeah, because some people are saying, well, oh man, we've already spent $6 billion. you can't stop now, but I don't know, I've heard other people call that a fallacy, and that sure, you can stop, why keep throwing bad money after good, you know. So, uh, right now, can you tell us exactly what the problem is up there, and why the costs just keep ballooning out of control? 
For sure. So Site C has always been a risky project, and now it has become an extraordinarily risky project for two related reasons. There are these geotechnical problems. They've been a concern from the beginning because the dam is not being built in a narrow, rocky canyon, as you see with most dams in, in Western Canada and the Western U.S. It's being built um, in a valley notorious for landslides on shale, which is essentially yeah. compressed mud. And that has led to uh, probably BC Hydro's worst nightmare, where the the concerns that were flagged years ago about possibly being a problem have now become a nightmare. And the, these problems relate to the stability of the dam itself, which has a weak foundation. And the public found out at the end of July that BC Hydro doesn't know how to fix these problems, how long it will take, or what it will cost. Okay, can't they just pour a whole bunch of concrete down there? Well, that's uh, that's what they've been doing. They've been yeah. addressing problems so far by putting concrete on. But the problem is, if you've got a weak uh, foundation, then the concrete um, is on a weak foundation, and uh, that leads to all kinds of problems down the road if you continue, unless you can address the problem of the foundation itself. Right. How about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic? Has that slowed construction up there as well? Well, it doesn't seem to have slowed construction, except they did scale back the workforce temporarily. Um, I think the bigger impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's hard to get uh, international geotechnical experts here to help them figure out the problem. And that, of course, everything, every uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is going to cost more uh, for every business just because of the precautions that need to be taken on work sites. But these issues were there long before the COVID-19 pandemic. And while yeah. that the pandemic might add to the cost, the problems were, were there before the pandemic. Right. Speaking to reporter Sarah Cox from the Narwhal website on, on the Site C Dam, I think one of the key questions here is who knew what when? You know, if you go back to December of 2017, that's when Premier John Horgan announced, we're going to keep building this thing. It's too late to stop it. What kind of information would have been available to his government at that time about the potential for this project to turn into a disaster? Well, in terms of the cost, the NDP had in front of them at the time a report from the Independent BC Utilities Commission that said that the price tag for the project could exceed $12 billion. Had they done research into the cost of large dams around the world, they would have very easily discovered that there was an Oxford University study that looked at large dams around the world and found that they suffered um, average cost overruns of uh, 96%. They could have gone digging into the Site C budget and asked questions because the dam was very clearly heading for cost overruns even at that time, above and beyond the extra $2 billion that the NDP tacked onto the price tag. And then they had warnings from people like David Vardy, who's the former chair of Newfoundland's Public Utilities Board, kind of the Mm. equivalent of the BCUC, saying, wait a minute, BC, stop now before uh, you get into the same situation that we're in in Newfoundland and Labrador. Right. Um, Some people will argue that we should keep building the thing anyway, despite the cost exploding out of control, despite the the uh, engineering challenges on the the land base next to the river, because this thing will produce a lot of clean power. So let me play this here for you, Sarah. This is uh, Blair King, who's an environmental scientist. He's been a guest here on the show discussing this issue in the past. and, And he points out we're going to need this clean power. Here's what he says. 
the economics say based on all the analyses of energy of energy requirements, electricity requirements going into 2035, we do not have access to the electricity we will need. And as a consequence, that electricity is going to get expensive. And dispatchable electricity is an incredibly valuable resource that can be sold at very high prices. Okay, making the argument that, look, everyone's switching over to electric cars, the population is going to continue to rise. We need more clean electricity, especially to, to combat climate change. Is that, I don't know, what do you think of that argument to keep building the Site C dam? Well, first of all, if you look at the facts, energy demand in BC has been stagnant and has even decreased slightly since 2005, despite a rising population. Even BC Hydro says that energy from the dam won't be needed uh, for at least 10 years, if if ever. Uh, we look at um, the BC Utilities Commission's findings that say that BC Hydro has historically overestimated energy demand. And then we take a study from, uh, say, the C.D. Howe Institute that just came out that said that even if we take the money that we would spend on the site C dam from here on in and invest it in other energy sources, we could have the same amount of energy for less money. So there's the question of how much energy do we need? The facts don't yeah. stand up to the fact that we urgently need energy. And then there's the whole question of clean. Um, the site C clean energy project, um, what's been marketed as a clean energy project, but um, when you look at the amount of concrete that's going into it, it's a major greenhouse gas emitter. And that concrete's mm. being um, put together with uh, coal ash from Alberta coal-fired plants, 532 trucks a month in 2019. And there's increasing evidence that, that large hydro reservoirs are major emitters of greenhouse gas emissions, including methane, which is 34 times more potent um, than carbon dioxide. So, yeah. Okay, last question for you. There's a review going underway by a guy named Peter Milburn uh, who's looking into this project. When are we expecting to get that, the results of that review? Well, we haven't been told. Um, it should hmm. be coming in the next couple of weeks. And I think the big wow. question to ask is, will the full information from that review be made public? Because one issue with this project all the way along has been the complete lack of transparency uh, to the public, who are, of course, the de facto owners of the dam and the people who will be okay. paying for it uh, if the power comes online. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. I've asked the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General to issue a requirement for the wearing of masks for all indoor public and retail spaces for staff and customers, except where eating or drinking. And except for BC Public Schools. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry making that mandatory mask order last week. She'd been under a lot of pressure to do that and resisted it for a long time. She finally comes in with the mandatory mask order last week. I think it was a good move. Just out doing some uh, grocery shopping on the weekend. I mean, it was I'm just reassuring. Everybody masked up. I didn't see anybody breaking the rules. So Canadians will do what they're told. You know, you told them, tell them to put the mask on. Most people will put the mask on. So I think it was a good thing that she did there. Better late than never. But why not in schools? Why not in BC public schools? This is the prominent exception to the mandatory face mask order in our province. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Mike Lombardi. He's the former chair of the Vancouver School Board. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi. Great to be on, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think of that uh, mandatory mask order by Dr. Bonnie Henry? 
Well, I think it was very good. It was a little late coming, but, you know, as you said, it's reassuring. I think, why is it that every other uh, health officer in the country has mandated masks in their provinces? Because the science shows that it's another useful measure. So it's good that she did that, and I think what it does is it reassures and reinforces to people that it's an important safety measure. It's not the only one, but it's an important one, so that was a good good decision. Yeah, I know she was worried about enforcement. She was worried about people who don't put the mask on being isolated, targeted, maybe there could be disputes, confrontations, and we may very well see that, but I, I think the, the, the greater good was getting people to mask up, because I, in, my, in my experience, or what I saw in the past few days, most people will follow the rules. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just yeah. reinforces good, appropriate behavior. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about enforcement. I'd worry about having people follow a good public policy yeah. of helping to fight COVID. So to me, it was a good decision. Let's get on with it. Let's now introduce right. it into schools because we've got the same issue there. Okay, what do you think about the mask mandate and, and public schools? Should it apply there too, in your opinion? Well, absolutely. Again, as I yeah. say, why is it that the public health officer in Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and New Brunswick have declared that masks should be worn by kids over 10 years old in schools at all times because it's another one of the layers of protection. And I can't believe that it hasn't happened here yet. I think it will. You're seeing increased parent advocacy. I see there's Masks Canada, a group of doctors across the country pushing for that. Teresa Tam said we should be doing that. We now have two parent groups in, in BC started advocating for it. We've got a petition there. I think it's just common sense. It's not the most important measure, but it's another measure which will reassure yeah. people that we're doing what we should be doing uh, to help mitigate against COVID in our schools. The most important one, I think, is physical distancing, and that's one where I think the government can be doing a lot more. Speaking to former Vancouver School Board trustee Mike Lombardi, he's a former chair of the school board in Vancouver. What do you think about some of the communications around COVID cases and COVID exposures in schools? Because I've heard a lot from parents and from teachers, support workers in the school system saying there could be a lot more transparency and openness about this. But your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it has not been that great, and I'm glad to see that uh, a deputy officer has been appointed to liaise with the educational community to make that happen. Again, what we should be doing is reassuring the public that we're on top of it and that we're transparent about our communications. When we don't do that, all kinds of other networks spring up. You see Facebook pages, Twitter feeds around it. So let's just give the important information like they're giving in other provinces. Tell us how many outbreaks there are. Tell us where the cases are. And do it in a thorough, responsible manner. That, again, lets people know that you're on top of it and we're doing what we can to mitigate it. Okay, mandatory face masks is one idea for schools. I think you'd probably get a lot of support on, on that idea. What else, what other measures do you think the government could reasonably put into place here to make schools safer? Yeah. Well, again, as you know, if you look at the, at the layers of uh, protection that are identified by the Center for Disease Control across the country, it says physical distancing is the most important. And I think the government really missed out on an opportunity that when school started this year, they didn't plan for physical distancing. They should have done what they've done in Vancouver Secondary. And Vancouver Secondary made a decision that they were going to keep their class sizes down to 15. So kids go yeah. in one day and then they work remote and home study the next day. And as a result, you've yeah. got no more than 15 kids in a class so you can do physical distancing. So you complement physical distancing with mask wearing, 
good hand hygiene and ventilation systems and you get health and safety for kids and for and for the employees and i think it's unfortunate that the government didn't take advantage of the federal restart funds that are available for schools to really say to schools you should be consistently doing what you can to reduce class sizes to increase uh, physical distancing and then putting in place the other mitigation measures i think they took a more of a haphazard approach instead of taking a consistent direct approach which has been done in other jurisdictions okay the teachers Union in British Columbia has made similar points saying let's have smaller classes 15 kids in a classroom and the cynical out there uh, might say well you just want the government to hire more teachers because if you have smaller classes wouldn't you have to hire more teachers but the union the union I believe is saying no you wouldn't necessarily have to hire more teachers because you do it just like what you just described there maybe you have 15 kids in class one day and then the next day they they learn from home right so you alternate Yeah, absolutely. I think the uh, ideal way would be to actually reduce the class size because I think when you've got the kids learning at home, it's not the ideal situation, but at least it provides a physical distancing. My preference as a former trustee and an educator would be that you actually reduce the class sizes, but that should have been done in September because you don't want to go back and reorganize all, all the classes now. But I think there are other ways, like you say, in Vancouver Secondary showed the way. What the government should have done is said, listen, we're not going to just leave it to you to do what you want. Give some direction. We know good policy works, and I wish the government had given more direction to school districts to follow the model, because what we're now seeing is a haphazard, inconsistent approach across the province and even across uh, school districts. Some districts have got that a policy, others don't, and I think that's unfortunate because we should be doing everything we can to put in place the safety rules to mitigate against covid We've seen a few schools shut down temporarily because of COVID exposure. So a handful of schools have been closed for a couple of weeks. And and I know, and just speaking to people in government, they do not want to go backwards. They do not want to shut the schools down. And just speaking as 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 a dad with a son in, in grade 10 in high school, uh, you know, my son's happier being back in school. And I wouldn't want to see the schools shut down. So, I mean, do you do you agree? Like, we keep we got to do everything we can to keep the schools open. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, the school yeah. should be open. We know what we should be doing. Physical distancing, good hand hygiene, mask wearing. The more you do those kind of things, the less likely of closing schools down. If you don't do those things, we're going to start getting more and more spikes, and we're probably going to have to go back and close. So let's do, I'm in favor of doing everything we can to avert lockdowns and closure of schools. And we know what the golden right. rules are. You know, physical distancing, mask wearing, good hand hygiene, Stay home if you're sick. And those are the kind of things we should be doing to avoid exactly what you say, because kids should be in schools. Teachers want kids in schools, and so do parents, and it's good public policy for the whole province. What, what do you think about the COVID safety measures in place and, and how they impact student learning and, and the mental health, uh, mental health and well-being of kids, teachers, support workers, everybody? Yeah, well, I think that's a really big one that we really are just starting to explore, Mike. Think about it. Kids have had academic disruption. They've had compressed learning schedules. They've had physical distancing uh, uh, in place. They've had independent online learning. They've had the abandonment of regular routines. I think all of these things are going to have a cumulative effect. And I think, you know, we need to really be paying attention to the mental health and well-being of kids. And one of the things I think we should be doing is having a dialogue with teachers and 
the community, and perhaps even a commission of inquiry to look at what are the impacts on kids of everything we've done during the COVID pandemic and then come up with ideas and solutions to mitigate that. Because in the end, the mental health and well-being uh, has to be in place to facilitate good teaching and learning. Mike, thanks for coming on today. Great. You're welcome, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay. All right. Welcome back to the show. We know Dr. Bonnie Henry has advised the public to go skiing at their local hills, which means if you live in the lower mainland, but you regularly visit Big White in the interior, or maybe you live in Kelowna and you want to go visit Whistler, you are now discouraged from traveling to go skiing. Our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now with a look at how that will impact the industry. Good morning, Mike. All this talk of travel bans, whether it's across the country or in the province, is leading to a lot of discussion on how it impacts you as an individual. But we can't forget that it would also impact businesses and actually entire industries, including one that is hoping for a very busy and productive winter off-season to offset what has been a truly challenging year. My guest is Christopher Nicholson, President and CEO of the Canada West Ski Areas Association. And Christopher, how concerned are you that a travel ban could potentially eliminate a lot of that much-needed tourism for ski resorts all across the province? For the ski industry, travel, of course, is important. And we've got a couple of different sorts of splits within the industry. When I say splits, meaning different kinds of areas. We have areas that have a high percentage of what's referred to as destination or international traffic, uh, as well as their local, and then others that are dedicated directly to the, 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 the local marketplace and community. As summer has demonstrated to us, a lot of people looking to try and get out into the outdoors, and that is... Uh, what we anticipate to be the same again for winter and one of the fortunate things for the for the ski industry is it is a an outdoor activity it naturally spaces people and there has been uh, a well since march the industry has worked not just within um within canada but internationally with the ski sector around the planet on developing best practices with health authorities informed by our summer operations but also and interestingly with australia and new zealand that have had a the southern hemisphere of course has, has had a successful ski season so all those have rolled up into protocols that the ski areas are now rolling out and have operationalized to keep people safe on the slopes and for for guests coming in there will be uh, there'll be a lot of changes in terms of how the the areas operate but those are done for a reason to keep people to keep people safe when we look at the actual traffic, yes, there is a, a, an impact in terms of travel on the destinations. Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler, was on Mornings with Simi on CKNW last Friday. So I'll play you this clip here, and here's what he had to say when asked what the ski season is going to look like in Whistler this year. I think the, the it's the basics. It's ensuring that you don't socialize on the hill, that you get in your har- car with just your household, you drive to the hill, you ski, you come home, you don't stop at your friend's house on the way there or the way back. Um, and 
skiing is one of those things that you can do in a safe manner, as Dr. Henry's been saying since the beginning. It's, it's an outside activity and there's lots of space. And so um, I think that it will be, you know, doing those things that we've all learned to do as a part of this process and ensuring that you're doing them well. So we know the plan is to roll out safe skiing environments on the slopes themselves, but the challenge is for the people now planning to come and visit. A travel ban really does complicate people's plans for this entire season. Yeah, there's a, a lot that's going on and there's still clarifications that we're we're seeking. And if we're if we're looking in terms of impact to the communities, if we're looking at changes that are um, or, or travel restrictions over, let's say, a two-week period, that is something that will impact the industry, but something that the industry can withstand. If we're talking about restrictions that carry through the, the critical Christmas period and into peak destination uh, or into peak seasons into the January, February, March period, that will have a greater impact. There's a, in, within British Columbia, the industry is a, a $2 billion industry. And perhaps more importantly, there's 22,000 jobs that the industry, uh, that industry provides and, and generates, um, payroll for, pays out wages and salaries for families. And so this is a key part for many communities where winter or ski itself is, is, uh, the, the driver of a winter tourism in Western Canada. And when we look at the impact on our communities, especially rural communities around the province, this is significant and important for the province. I have friends in Revelstoke. I have lived in the East Kootenai, close to Kimberley. I've been to Fernie. I know these communities depend a lot on tourists from Alberta to make sure that their ski season is robust and healthy. How worried are you for some of these smaller ski hills, like the ones I mentioned, that could be looking at a very challenging winter season, financially speaking, if they can't depend on tourists from other provinces to come and visit? Well, I'll put it this way. Mr. Trudeau, if you are listening, the Q's program or the federal wage subsidy is the key for this business survival and ski resorts are, are a part of that as well. When we're talking about the, the hardships and uh, challenges that things like travel res- uh, restrictions would impose, the wage, federal wage subsidy is a program that allows employers, it doesn't matter the sector, to keep people on the payroll. This is even more important in rural areas where if, uh, when you've got um, keeping people on payroll is critical because if they, if they are uh, leave employment or laid off in a particular uh, industry uh, in rural BC, oftentimes they will leave and, and move elsewhere because there's limited number of employment opportunities in that area. And trying to retain someone and bring someone back and recruit into rural communities is even more challenging. So the, the wage subsidy is a critical piece to this entire, uh, entire experience right now in terms of how business ski areas included deal with this. He is Christopher Nicholson, President and CEO of the Canada West Ski Areas Association. Christopher, appreciate you giving us some time here today. And more than anything, I think it's important to note that after a very challenging 2020 with December just around the corner, lots of people want to make sure that they can safely enjoy the ski hills if possible. But the whole notion of travel ban certainly complicating that discussion. Get outside and stay healthy. And uh, my, my one uh message and, and request of guests is to look at the ski area websites before you go. The, the skiers have spent months developing safe protocols. 
and uh, those protocols have allowed the ski areas to open and to provide a, an experience for guests. So please check the websites before you go to understand what the protocols at your particular area might be. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you. Next Tuesday, December 1st, is CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day. We may not be gathering in person this year, but we will still be raising money all day long on CKNW, bringing you inspiring stories from the BC Kids, supported by your donations. And make a difference by making a pledge this year. Details at cknwkidsfund.com. CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day is next Tuesday, December 1st. Really looking forward to that. Okay, let's talk a little cars here. Now, if you're in the market for a new car, maybe you're thinking about going for an electric vehicle this time. Maybe you think about going for the traditional gas-powered vehicle. Or what about a hybrid? Lots of choices out there. Very pleased to welcome to the show right now Dan Illica. He is a car reviewer and writer for autotrader.ca. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for uh, having me. I appreciate it a lot. Dan, sometimes I think about my very first car, which was a 1969 VW Beetle. I bought it for 250 bucks, and it was a rust bucket, but I'll tell you what. I love that thing. It had It was blue. It had a white kind of racing stripe down the side of it. And, uh, yeah, it was a nerd car, but that's okay because I was a nerd in high school, so it was fine. And I, I'll tell you what, I love driving it because it had a stick shift, you know? So I used to think, like, I felt like Mario Andretti driving that thing because I was, I was driving a stick shift. How come people don't drive stick shift anymore? Or it seems like most people don't. Yeah, definitely not, you know, what it used to be in terms of market share. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it just really comes down to convenience, right? Automatic transmissions. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're stuck in traffic, it's a lot easier to to rest your foot. And now, even even more than just having an automatic, you know, most modern automatic equipped vehicles have a brake hold function. So you're stuck in stop and go traffic. Come to a full stop, apply the brakes, and you can let your foot off the brake pedal, and it'll keep the brakes engaged and your brake lights on, um, oh. so you can kind of rest both feet. Whereas, obviously, in a manual, you know, you're constantly having to work that clutch pedal. So around town, it's, you know, it's not great, but it's still, both of my cars are manual and I still absolutely love it. Like you're saying, <laughs> it makes, you know, I, I, I have a 1995 Mazda Miata. It's not exactly a fast oh. vehicle, but it is so much fun to drive. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and in Vancouver, we got a lot of steep hills in parts of Vancouver. Sometimes it's a little tricky rolling back on a hill with a manual Yeah, stick. absolutely. Yeah. It can be, you know, even, even with the, with the hill hold function that, you know, that most modern manuals have. It's still a little bit unnerving. Somebody gets a little bit too close behind you. So, you know, I, I do respect and appreciate people looking to kind of take that hassle out of the drive experience. Sure. But on the flip side, I look at it and say, if if even a sliver of your being enjoys driving, yeah. I highly, <laughs> highly recommend heading out and, and getting yourself a manual. All right. I'm glad to hear you're old school on that one because I, I think it is more fun to drive for sure. Um, Dan, you do a great job on autotrader.ca. I've been checking out a lot of your columns posted on there. I encourage people to give you a follow on Twitter. Just follow me on Twitter and you'll, you'll see Dan. I just retweeted some of his stuff. So, um, let's talk about one of your recent columns. And that was if you're, if you're in the market to make a decision on a new vehicle, 
You know, a lot of people thinking about an electric vehicle these days. I guess we still sell a lot of traditional gas-powered vehicles as well, but you like the hybrid, right? The hybrid vehicle? I do. I think it's a nice kind of, I don't want to necessarily call it a stopgap because, you know, the the technology is is fantastic. Um, But if you're on the fence, if you haven't driven anything electrified yet and you're a little bit worried, if range anxiety is still, you know, something that's lurking in the back of your mind, a hybrid is a great alternative. I'm in one this week, and I'm in the, the brand new, the 2021 Toyota Venza. Fantastic. You know, give or take about the size of a, of a Toyota RAV4. It's got the hybrid powertrain. And this week, I've been averaging 6.0 liters per 100 kilometers, uh, which is pretty fantastic, especially considering the size of this thing. And there are no sacrifices. So if you want to go on a long road trip, you know, you don't have to worry about, well, do I have enough electric range to get there or is there a charger along the way? Because right. you can just, you know, fill the tank with gas and off you go. Right. Is it, are the hybrids typically more expensive or are they cheaper than, say, a, a full electric? They're, they're cheaper than a full electric and they're more expensive than a conventional gas-powered vehicle. Though that's, that's really changing, you know, as the, as the technology spreads, um, it, it's definitely coming down in price. So you take this Venza or you take a RAV4, you know, it's, it's price competitive with the conventional powered RAV4. Um, and the same goes with the Ford Escape. Ford's really positioned that strategically. So the, the Escape hybrid only comes as a single trim. The only, there's a couple options that you can throw on there, all wheel drive, a head up display, a panoramic sunroof, but it's priced at about $3,000 less than the equivalent gas powered model. Okay, so how really about how about the charging up? Like, you know, for a full electric vehicle, like you said, you're always looking for the place to plug in. You got to plug in your vehicle at home. With a hybrid, like when you're running the car in gas mode, does does it also charge up the battery at the same time? So do you have to plug it in? Yeah, so you can buy plug-in hybrids. Um, yeah. So those will have a small range, which a vehicle like that's going to be great. You know, I, I know that uh, the Vancouver City Council has has tabled some some plans to have a, a sort of congestion tax where yes. you know uh, gas powered vehicles will have to pay um, to to come into the city. So the nice thing about a plug in hybrid is you can save the electric range. So let's say you charge it overnight and you've got yourself about forty kilometers of driving range, but you live you know outside of outside of town. You've got a bit of a commute to come in, so you can run on the gas engine. And then as soon as you get into the city limits where it's going to be mandated that, you know, you can only run on on electricity, you can hit that button and drive in EV mode and use those those emissions free kilometers around town. Okay, and are these cars cool looking or what? Because I guess maybe there's a perception that they're ugly looking cars. I I would say, you know, I understand early days, uh, the Prius, the Honda Insight, you know, those were were pretty quirky looking. But now more often than not, they're they're based on, you know, conventional vehicles. So you've got the Toyota Corolla, got the Toyota RAV4, the Ford Escape, the Toyota Highlander, the list goes on and on. And they're just, yeah. unless you look and find that little hybrid badge, you'd have no idea that it was a hybrid versus a gas-powered vehicle. Okay, so I, think it's, I, I think it's great that you love the stick shift. Um, you know, because I still think back to that, that 69 VW Beetle that I bought for 250 bucks. I mean, it was a rust bucket. This thing was so rusty. If, if I drove over a puddle, there used to be, you, you'd get wet. There'd be like, there'd be like water coming up through the floor. That was not, not a good thing at all. 
but I still loved the thing. I loved I loved the stick shift in it. It just made you feel like even though it was just such an underpowered little car, didn't go very fast at all. It just felt like you were driving the thing. I just felt like I was driving a race car or something. So um, that was my first car, '69 VW Beetle. What was your very first car, Dan? I had a '95 Ford Escort that I got from my brother. Um, and that I loved it. Same sort of thing. You know, it was just a blast to drive. It wasn't fast. It wasn't cool looking. It was, it was teal and, you know, but I just, it was mine and I, and I loved it so, so much. And that's what I think is really cool. You know, whether you're talking about automotive enthusiasts or if you're talking about just, you know, for, for a lot of people, I understand that vehicles are kind of appliances. You know, we all have that connection. There's some sort of, you know, you, you think back to your first vehicle and you have those early memories. So, you know, it transcends passion for, for the automobile. All right. Welcome back. Talking cars with my guest, Dan Alika. He is a car reviewer and writer for autotrader.ca. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Casey in Pitt Meadows. Hey guys. How you doing? Good. Good, good. Hey, I was just wondering what uh, what's your thoughts or review on the F one fifty hybrid, the twenty one two twenty one twenty twenty one. Okay, Dan, the F one fifty hybrid. Yeah, you know it's really exciting to see trucks finally getting that hybridization, right? I mean, it's it's such a huge uh, percentage of of new vehicles on the marketplace, right? The top three sellers in Canada consistently are the F one fifty, the Ram uh, fifteen hundred, and the Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra. So finally seeing Ford, you know, make that push. And obviously I haven't driven it yet, uh, but I am very, very excited about it. Not just because of what it means for, you know, lowering the uh, the emissions and, and your fuel consumption, but also it's really cool that, you know, you can essentially use it as a generator. You can use your truck as a generator to run your power tools on a job site or when you're out camping. Wow. I mean, that to me is very appealing. Um, so, you know, we should... Should have those uh, come the new year. We'll be able to get one out for a for a review. So you know, stay tuned to our to our website autotrader.ca/expert uh, as well as our YouTube channel. But I am very optimistic about uh, what what that means for the future of of full size trucks. Right. And would they sacrifice any power there? Do you think? No, no, not yeah. at all. Um, okay. You know, it's obviously, you know, it's it's hard to say. Like, it's chances are it's going to drive different, but. For a couple different reasons, I, I am confident that Ford's going to kind of maintain the, the integrity of the truck because, you know, that's what a truck buyer ultimately wants, right, is the power yeah. to tow, right. um, to haul. And so you're not going to have to worry about that because with, with the electric motor, no matter how small or, or large it is, you get instant torque. So it's sure. more of a, of a supplement to the gas engine than, than a detriment to it. Okay, that is exciting. Ian in Vancouver. Hi, Ian. on. Good. Good. Um, I missed the early part about why um, you were saying uh, that your next vehicle should be uh, a stick shift. I learned on a on a stick, and uh, could you just go over those those reasons? Well, I didn't. I didn't say your next vehicle should be a stick shift. I just think that uh, a stick shift is more more fun to drive. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I have great memories um, of our. We had a. Uh, POS 9000 uh, Datsun B210 truck on our farm that I learned uh, to drive on in the snow in Ontario. And yeah. it was responsive. Um, it, you were more engaged in driving, uh, I think, than you are with an automatic. Yeah. And uh, you learned to, you really learn more about uh, how a car works um, 
you know, from the drivetrain perspective, when you're when you're uh, driving, especially in uh, in conditions that aren't the best, because you get a better sense right. of of traction and whatnot. But really, great memories of learning that. I don't know how many people are learning to drive a uh, stick shift anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I know my son is uh, getting ready to take his test and stuff, and I- I'm going to try and teach him how to drive a stick shift, but I'm also going to make sure he gets some professional training. But in your experience, Dan, like, are, do most young drivers or new drivers, a lot of them probably don't even know how to drive as standard. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have heard of, of driving schools across the country, you know, not no longer offering manuals just because there's not an interest. But I will say, you know, for, for parents of teens, yourself included, Mike, you know, a kid who's who's about to you know learn how to drive a manual transmission is a great little safety net to keep the phone out of their hands behind the oh. wheel because they just can't <laughs> right yeah. Yeah, and I and that. i know it sounds so you know so silly but i think it's a great you know a great kind of safety net that you can say hey well how are you if you're you know driving a manual you've got your you know your right hands on the shifter because yeah. you got to constantly be running up and down the gears, so there's there's less of a chance for them to pick up the phone. Oh, I love it! I hadn't even thought of that. That's a that's a great point. Let's go to D on the line in Poco. Hiya, D. Yeah. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. Standard all the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, as Ian just said, my nephew, who's 18, is just about to get his license and. Next time he visits me, I'm totally teaching him how to drive a standard, if if for no other reason than safety. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm look. I'm actually looking forward to teaching my son how to do it. I think it could be kind of fun. I just got to make sure I find the biggest parking lot I can find so he can be <laughs> as safe as possible. But you know, I think it's going to be kind of fun to teach him how to do it. Let's go to uh, Vicky on the line in Kelowna. Hiya, Vicky. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to tell you, I drive a hybrid, and my hybrid charges its own battery while I'm driving. Right. And it switches back and forth seamlessly from electric to uh, gas. I never know unless I look on the dash, and it's got EV on the dash, so I know that it's running on electric. But uh, it's not a plug-in. Uh, last summer, when gas was expensive, we went to the Kootenays, and oh. I went 1,200 kilometers, and uh, I filled it up before I left. I filled it up when I got back, $29. Oh, wow, great. You gotta yeah, love it. 1,200 kilometers is a lot, and that's, that's uphill and downhill, and it, it, that was a good test. Okay. And I, my first car was a forty-eight Volkswagen, Whoa. so I know how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love it, Vicky. Thank you very much for calling in. I think she kind of summed up the advantages there of the hybrid, Dan. Yeah, definitely. You know that's yeah. that's the thing, right? So Toyota, you know, Toyota markets its hybrid system as as a self charging system as a way to kind of you know, bridge the gap or, or inform people who might not necessarily understand how it works. But, you know, Vicky was spot on. It's, it's the gas engine. So Toyota's uh, hybrid system works. It's got dual motor generators under the hood with the, uh, with the gas engine. One of them is going to be feeding energy back into the battery pack. The other one is going to be powering those front wheels. And then it's also got regenerative brakes. So every time you slow down, it's going to pump more energy into the battery for you to use later on. And then if you have a, a, an all-wheel drive one like this Venza or like the RAV4 or the Highlander, it's got a separate electric motor in the back that drives the rear wheels, and that's completely independent of the rest of the powertrain. Okay. And it's just very cool. It's cool technology, but, you know, like she said, it's very seamless, and, and you often don't even notice when it's working, but you will notice 
you know, at the pumps or when you take a look and realize, hey, I haven't filled up in, you know, two yeah. weeks and I've, I've clocked, you know, 800 kilometers. So it's very, I love it. it is very nice. I love it, Dan. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show today. We'd love to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. Take care.